In two weeks, Columbia Pictures will present 3D as you've never seen it before. The first quality 3D film backed by a major studio. The first to use a new state-of-the-art 3D process. This is Space Hunter, Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. It's the story of three unlikely heroes. Their destination, the Forbidden Zone. Their mission, save three stranded women. I like her. Their chances, one in a million. I'll take that bet. Columbia Pictures presents outer space as you've never seen it before. The ultimate 3D experience. Can't anything be simple anymore. Space Hunter. Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. In 3D, the first movie that puts you in outer space. Rated PG. Coming soon to a theater near you. This spoiler-filled podcast is recorded live, unscripted, and intended for those over 18. Now prepare your ears for the audio stimulation they've been waiting for all day as we step into the spoiler room. And welcome to another edition of The Spoiler Room. I am your host, Mark the Movie Man. It is Milestone Month here, and we are celebrating it with covering sci-fi films that I have been wanting to talk about for a while. Some you may have heard of, but this one, I'm not sure if you have if you don't follow science fiction. We're talking about Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. Yes, and tonight I've got a great crew with me to talk about this sci-fi epic that was in 3D originally from 1983. First off, the diva of the spoiler room herself. She is back, the one, the only. It is Dawn. Hello, Dawn. Good evening, gentlemen. Glad to have you here. And, And next to Dawn is the BFD. Mr. Glenn Bittner. Hello, Glenn. Hello. And finally, we have our last Earther of the evening. It is Scotty D. Hello, Scott. I'm glad you noticed. Uh, <laughs> we're not all scavs around here. <laughs> we're going to have... Uh, I, I was going to read the synopsis of IMDb, but I want uh, our great friend here, Mr. Glenn Bittner, to give his... Uh, uh, version of the synopsis for Space Hunters Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. Glenn, go ahead and give it a shot. All right, so we got uh, Morella and her friends are on their way to audition for Airwolf, and their ship crashes on this planet. Um, And then Egon Spengler uh, calls up Justin, leader of the rats, to send him down there to go uh, find them. He runs across uh, Claire, who apparently got out of attention early. Uh, They meet up with Uncle Bill. Uh, They head on out to... uh, do battle with um, Zeus, and that's pretty much it. <laughs> well said, well said. Uh, yes, folks, if you didn't pick up on that, it is about three women making an emergency landing on a planet plagued with fatal disease, uh, but they're captured by the dictator Overdog. I love that name. Yes! <laughs> Adventurer Wolf goes to rescue them, meets Nikki, uh, played by Molly Ringwald, if you didn't catch the references, Mr. Bittner, uh, very well put, uh, and as well as his buddy Washington, and they go try to rescue the girls and get the money and save the day. <laughs> this sci-fi epic was a sh- uh, part of a run of films back in 83. I don't know if it's because it ended in 83 or what, but it, it, around that time when they were trying to have a resurgence of 3D, yes, I know, shocking, 
but 3D is just not a really new trend in film. <laughs> and this was one of them. Uh, and I remember seeing this in the theater. I remember seeing a number of the 3D films in the theater. I saw this in the theater. I did see Metal Storm in the theater, <laughs> as well as uh, Jaws 3D and Treasure of the Four Crowns, I remember oh, seeing wow. in 3D in the theater. Uh, and yeah, this, this film is a lot of fun. I, I remember it quite vividly that I, I thought it was a blast. And uh, getting to rewatch it, I will say that uh, a lot of it actually still holds up. Uh, let's just go down the line really quick and see uh, what our crew, how they initially feel about this film, especially when they first saw it. Don, how about you? I did not actually see this movie in the theater for the first time. I think I'm the only person in this group that was not an avid theater goer as a kid. Um, <clears throat> probably because <clears throat> I'm a little bit older than you and uh, was really hitting the VHS heyday. <laughs> um, but I, the, from the first time I saw this movie, I absolutely loved everything about it. It's gritty. It's got tons of adventure and imagination. I, everybody else that I talked to at the time hated the movie. It was cheesy. It was uh, Star Wars wannabe, Star Trek wannabe, whatever the flavor of the day was. Um, but I absolutely loved this movie uh, for many reasons, um, not the least of which is Michael Ironside is an awesome villain and just awesome in general. Michael Ironside always does a great villain. I mean, he's done other great here, you know, good guys, but when it comes to villains, he seems to add that little extra and as overdog. Yeah. Uh, he definitely makes for a unique character. Uh, Glenn, how about you, sir? I remember seeing it at the theater. Uh, I remember seeing it on HBO, uh, not, that long after as well. Um, I watch it numerous times. I do remember the 3D from this as well as Metal Storm and Star Chaser and, and every single one of those I watched was the 3D. I'm like, seriously? Was that was that it? It's like one dude like poking a needle at me. That's like the whole fucking thing. I mean, the the 3D from back then, it was... I, to call it a gimmick would be giving it too much credit. <laughs> but I still enjoyed the movie. I mean... Overall, it's very cheesy, very campy, very, very B-movie, even though they did spend some some, uh, some coin on this. Um, and it had, you know, some actual, you know, not like huge names, but, you know, known people. And I enjoyed it. I mean, the, I mean, Ivan Reitman's attached to it. So, I mean, it's not like this is just, you know, some dude, you know, hanging around and said, hey, I want to make a movie, and I didn't know a couple people who know how to do it. I like it. It's it's it gave me fodder for a, a Star Frontiers game I ran shortly after, as I did with most sci-fi movies I watched. But yeah, I mean, it's I, I wouldn't go this Scott, sorry, I wouldn't go as far as to call this a good movie. <laughs> it's okay. Um, but it's an enjoyable movie. Entertaining, at least. Yeah, it's an yeah. entertaining. Especially for back then, you can tell there was a little bit of effort at least put into this film uh, compared to some others of its type. Uh, about that time, uh, and now we get to Scott. Everybody, uh, Doc, Scott, how do you feel about Space Hunter: The Adventures in the Forbidden Zone? Oh, yeah. and don't worry, Glenn. You know, trust me. Uh, 
decades of opening every single movie guide that ever was ever published and seeing one star, half star, bomb attached to this movie, it's prepared me, man. <laughs> but, uh, you know, 1983, I was eight years old, so it's, I was very young. So but for some reason, there was like this huge sci-fi boom around this time. I don't know. I guess they were like – it was that time – uh, in those years between 1980 83, like between Empire and Return of the Jedi, they were all getting them out there. As Mark mentioned, we had a uh, a 3D boom that had ha- that had started the year before with Friday the 13th 3D, and was continued on with like lots of other movies, and especially in the summer of 83 because the big, the second biggest movie besides Jedi was Jaws 3D. They were trying to rush out all these other 3D movies because it's like, well, Jaws 3D won't be in the theater forever, <laughs> and we are having to reconvert all of our damn projectors for the, this Jaws 3D that everybody's telling us is going to be the biggest thing ever. So we wanted something else. So they, so uh, Universal bought Metal Storm, which was a very low-budget film from Charles Band. Uh, you had Amityville 3D and stuff like that. And Columbia went all out in the cheesiness because they combined their uh, the creates for 3D movies with the creates for colon movies, real films with really long titles separated by a colon. So <laughs> this movie joined Metal Storm: The Destruction of Jared Sin, Star Trace of the Legend of Orin, Your Hunter from the Future, uh, and they released this sucker, Space Hunter: Adventures of the Forbidden Zone, the first film that puts you in outer space. It, 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 the ads proclaimed so. As a sci-fi geek, I was nuts for it. My brother took me to this. I didn't know what 3D was because I wasn't allowed to see any of the movies that were released in 3D yet. Of course, I can't see Friday the 13th. I was too scared of my own shadow to see that. Uh, Treasure of the Four Crowns. For some reason, I wasn't allowed to see it. Um, uh, Revenge of the Creature played on TV at one point. I wasn't allowed to see that either. Uh, so I, I got to see this, and I'm like, well, what is 3D? Just relax. This film opens up with this spaceship blowing up and all the parts flying out of the screen, and they just seem to fly right out of the screen. And I was, like, ducking and weaving in my seat <laughs> at eight years old because I'm like, oh, my God, we're going to get hit. <laughs> this film put me in the action right away. And now today I can't actually process 3D. So this is like these – from this and Metal Storm are two memories I really cherish because my eyes can no longer process the 3D effect uh, due to surgeries. This film put me in the action way back then, and, you know, I re- revisit a lot of these old movies, and a lot of them I love for nostalgia's sake. And this one I love for nostalgia's sake as well. But this is the one that still holds up for me. I watched this movie, and I'm like, yeah, I know the dialogue's corny. I know that it's a cheesy storyline, and it's, like, right out of a serial and everything like that. But you know what? If you take it in that spirit, everything holds up. The performances are great. The dialogue is hilarious. I love the special effects. I love the action sequences. I love that it throws everything in this movie we got merwomen we've got mutants we've got road warrior stuff we've got space stuff we've got robot tentacles it's amazing (laughs) i love this movie i have seen space and uh one of my very first episodes of moviocrity i'm waiting about this this movie i don't know why but it is for some reason it's my most popular episode that i've ever done it's sitting at like over eighteen thousand hits on youtube right now and um, 
And then there's a few more on Vimeo. Uh, I don't know why it's so popular. Maybe there's other people that like it as much as I did. I don't know. But I can tell you that this film just still holds up to this day. And I go nuts for it. I have seen Space Hunter over a hundred times. <laughs> nice. That is not an exaggeration. <laughs> I, I believe it. I believe that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that's, that's like several days of my life that I have dedicated just to watching Space Hunter. <laughs> oh, I, I remember watching it more when I was younger because it was cable fodder uh, for a while. It was on cable for quite a, uh, some time. HBO Especially, ran the hell yep. out of this thing. They <laughs> did. HBO ran it an awful lot. But uh, revisiting it again, I, I literally just finished it today again. I forgot how many people were actually in this film. Uh, and, and as as Glenn mentioned, it's it's impressive, uh, really. I mean, you know, Molly Ringwald, uh, very young Molly Ringwald in here. Uh, but we've got Ernie Hudson in here as well, uh, as uh, well as Michael Ironside, as we've mentioned already. Peter Strauss is in here, who, yes, uh, did a voice for Secret and M. And uh, my personal, I, I love this connection, totally forgot she was in here, even for a short amount of time, was Andrea uh, Markovici, who is plays Chalmers, and she's the android for Wolf that we're introduced to. Wolf, who is not Han Solo. Um, <laughs> and she was in the stuff. So, uh, yeah, I, I got a kick out of seeing her because she was in that wonderful cult classic, The Stuff, uh, which you can't get enough of. So, yes, there are actually a number of familiar faces in here if you are familiar with especially early 80s cinema or 80s cinema in general. And everybody does do well with this script. Now, Wolf, as I mentioned, as I hint at, is not Han Solo. Glenn, did you get the vibe that they were going kind of for the Han Solo vibe with him? Oh, absolutely. I mean... Uh especially when you add on the fact that Ernie Hudson was pretty much cast because he kind of looks like Lando Calrissian. Mm -hmm. Yep. Boy, if that isn't a, you know who all looks alike, black people. <laughs> Ernie Hudson does not look like Billy D. Williams. No. no. Not at all. He doesn't, but he I makes... Mean, aside from the fact, I mean, they're both men, so I guess there's that. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's definitely a Han Solo vibe they were going through. It's just, this is, you know, a lot of this is, what can we copy from Star Wars? Well, down down to the special effects. I mean, right yeah. off, when we get Wolf kicking his control panel, there's a sound and of... There's the R2-D2 beep, yeah. <laughs> the R2-D2 beep. Uh, and then the weapons themselves, the not-handgun blasters, which sound like handguns. <laughs> um, which I loved. I was listening to that going... Wow, they sound like revolvers. That's amazing. <laughs> but again, this is only taking place in, what, 2103, 2102? You know, not that far away from now. And so, but Wolf is, Wolf is your great character, but he is, he is, I think this thing, they opened up like the science fiction book of tropes and pretty much hit every single one of them, didn't they, Don? Pretty much, pretty much. I mean, you got you got your your kind of anti-hero who owes rent. He's got a bad reputation. He's an ex-military guy. He, he's, I mean, they, they run through that list of uh, things at the beginning of the movie, and I'm like, wow, they just hit all of the spot. They just hit all of those uh, cliches for your anti-hero, if you will. But I did like the idea of Chalmers, the the android 
who uh, he kept in a in a box uh, yeah. for sleeping. Um, <laughs> it was her downtime. <laughs> it was, was her. Yes, it was her downtime. Dawn, what, what did you think of, of Chalmers' character in this? I I am been trying to figure out exactly what her purpose is, <laughs> aside from to interface with the you know. And with the spaceship's computer, um, because it kind of sounded like she was a sex bot. It did, and and they were leaning towards that, but it, it was weird, you know, because he mentioned, well, I'm glad I got you the night shirt instead of buying components for the ship, and I'm like, oh, so you mean when you first, God, this sounds horrible, when you first purchased her, she was not clothed? <laughs> well, she was probably clothed in something a little less, um, yeah. a little more functional, less provocative. Uh, I will say out of... Uh, she she doesn't come off as... I know she's an android, but she doesn't come off as least a, a weak female character at all. She is, mm. She's definitely an equal Decidedly to Decidedly not. No, yeah. it's, I think that there was... I mean, obviously she was there uh, for in part for companionship. You know, yeah. and for physical companionship, as they as they put on there. I mean, there's even a type where he starts to kind of smile and lean towards her, like, okay, let's get to work. She says, uh, because she's even though she's a robot and she that's part of her purpose on the ship and everything like that that she was programmed for, she has a personality, and she doesn't just do whatever she's told. You know, she's she's got a personality. She can give as well as she can as well as she takes, and you know she's ha- can do anything she wants with the computer of the ship and everything like that, and help out. It. So I think that it, even though that is part of it, um, part of her functionality, because let's face it, let's not give this film that much credit. Even though that's part of her functionality, they made her into such a well-rounded character that I think, as a kid, I didn't even catch Mm -hmm. that that was part of her purpose, and I didn't catch until like years later. I'm like, oh, (laughs) because because they made her into a they didn't make her into a fembot, you know? Well, no, they didn't just they just they didn't. She was an equal, if not, you know, even more. Mm -hmm. You know, she actually kind of. Uh, wore the pants on the ship, if you will. Um, yeah, even though she was sans pants, yeah. <laughs> but I will say she's probably, and I know, probably the strongest female character that shows up in this film. I mean, Nikki is somewhat strong, but she's very young. So I think there you might have a little leeway, but as far as the older females go, because Dawn, those three females that are in distress, uh, I mean... Really? <laughs> what did you think of them? I mean, they were just—they were really just the damsels. They're, yeah, they're—they're they're incidental. They're not anywhere near full fleshed-out characters. Yeah, they're completely incidental. They are—they are the 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 golden idol they're supposed to get. They're not. Mm-hmm. I don't I'm think they're really intended to be real people. Sure. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I know it sounds terrible, but the way the movie is written and the way it's portrayed, they're for whatever their importance is as far as the story goes. As far as the story, the actual characters are unimportant. They are simply the the they are the mission. Yeah, right. they're the they're the total MacGuffin. The only reason they even have them be human females is so you can have that 
scene that really stressed the PG rating where he overdog says, undress her. Okay. <laughs> we'll get to that. In a, we're going to get to that in a minute. Uh, but uh, I want to talk about just uh, some of the other female characters in here. Uh, you've got Nikki, who is played by Molly Ringwald, who was very young. Who I think for for her age, she did well in this. I mean, she is a fairly strong character for her age, isn't she, Scott? Oh yeah, I. Uh, you know, she shot this movie. Um, you know, between her when she was like between fourteen and fifteen years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she's a ki- so she really is a kid here, and um, that and I I love the I love the character I love her dialogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, right out right away because she's lived on first of all everybody on this planet speaks weird. You know, you can get like from the isolation of the planet, or whether they're trying to do some really lame attempt at future speak. I don't know. Uh, everybody talks weird, but she talks weirder because she's been isolated by even more because she's been surviving in the wild all these years. And she has, and she has this. Uh, I think her first lines. To she tries to steal Wolf's car, Space Hunter's car, and says, "What the hell are you?" What do you think I am, you scrotting earth bag? I'm a woman, an earther. You better not skiz my home or I'll have my brother split your face. And yeah. my father split your face. And I got brothers too. I screwed up one. But, but, I mean, it's just, and she talks like that throughout the whole film, which I'm sure is what a lot of people find annoying about the movie. I love her character. I think she's plucky. I think she's funny. Uh, I think she does actually show quite a lot of uh, not just vulnerability, but also strength. Mm-hmm. And she shows how she can has she survived all these years and everything, and uh, I really think that she she did this amazing job in a part where I don't know how someone would go about playing a part like this because of because the dialogue is written so strangely and everything. But yeah. uh, I I really I mean I always liked Molly Ringwald in this movie a lot. Well, it, what I like about it is it's kind of a bit of a refreshing twist. I like the fact that she was actually a kid because you could easily see them casting an older female and then suddenly doing your cliche romance, couldn't you, Glenn? Is it a little oh, bit uh, refreshing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she's not. I mean, seeing as the, some of the other women that were there solely for eye candy purposes, not to say that movies couldn't be creepy in that regard, but. They weren't, thankfully. Yeah, this was in '76, so we're no. good. But uh, it, it would have been creepy. But I, I kind of liked the, the the father, kid vibe in this film, which you know mm-hmm. I didn't pick up when I was younger. She is a bit whiny, but <laughs> I mean, uh, I'll, I'll I'll take a whiny sidekick uh, over the oh, look at me, I can't run because I'm wearing high heels out in the desert type of character that they tend to love to use. So. <laughs> People still misread this relationship, too. If you look online, you can find a lot of reviews for Space Hunter that think that it's supposed to be a romantic relationship, I guess because of a few early comments that the Nikki character makes towards Wolf. But I'm like, yeah, she's a, you know, a pubescent adolescent girl, so she makes a couple overtures, but the relationship is very obviously parental, if anything. So I always thought it was like I always thought the mo- that the relationship was a lot sweeter than some people read into it. Oh, I'm loving listening to you guys try to understand a teenage girl because <laughs> you do. 
<laughs> None of you have any freaking clue. No, no, we don't. Oh my I, god. I have. I will fully. I will fully. Yeah, admit it as well. But no, how would um, you? How you feel about Nikki? I think that it 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 wasn't a stretch for her to play a teenage girl. It wasn't a stretch for her to understand uh, to step into the role of a young girl who was who felt completely abandoned because she was alone desperate for some sort of parental approval some sort of parental figure and trying to latch on to the first kind person who was even remotely kind to her even if it was in a really tough way it made perfect sense to me that she was a a whiny little girl because you know when when your hormones are raging and you're trying to you want to be a child, but you're trying to be an adult. Girls, at least in my experience, back in the 80s, fine. <laughs> yeah. Boys, teenage boys, in my experience, back in the 80s, fine. <laughs> but girls were allowed to do so more, and therefore that's what it is, and hopefully we're changing that in this day and age. But we're talking about the 80s here. I, I like the Nikki character. Mm-hmm. I never had any problems seeing the per- more parental role. I mean, in my early viewings, and I, I watched this a lot, um, in my early viewings, I remember I, I, I caught on to the, the Chalmers sex spot thing immediately because, hey, you know, that's what girls notice. Um, <laughs> because especially as a young teenage girl, looking at a handsome guy with a, with a gorgeous sex spot, you're like, oh, that would be so cool to be with him because then I could be the sex bot. And again, teenage girl thought. It was a little weird because when uh, Nikki was introduced, you weren't sure where they were going to go with it because, you know, lines got crossed at that time sometimes. I mean, we just discussed it and cast a deadly spell. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) So that line was crossed plenty of times. But, yeah, it was also really easy and, and... for a teenage girl to notice or to catch on to the the parental thing because that's how you're trying to introduce your dad or your favorite uncle or in, impress your dad or your favorite uncle or whatever. And I I actually like I like the transition and again this is something you know I, I notice now being the old fogey versus you know uh, how young I was when I first watched this but watching it now it's it, it's an interesting how they take the wolf character and they take him from being with a adult female to this kid who he completely acknowledges as a kid and treats as a kid throughout. I mean, you know, I, I like how they did that with his character, actually. And it was a surprise because, as we mentioned before, during this time, especially the slightly lower-budget sci-fi films, you didn't quite get that type of handling of your character at all. And yep. I think... I think part of that was Peter Strauss's performance in it. I think he really plays this part well in the way you want it played, you know. And then we get the Ernie Hudson character, who I, I loved and would love to see a spinoff of a film with his <laughs> character because uh, he really makes the most of it. I, I always have been a big fan of Ernie Hudson, you know, and seeing him in here, which I, in all honesty, I forgot he was in this film. Uh, until watching it again, I was like, oh, hey, that's Ernie Hudson. This is awesome. This film just got a lot better. I, I got to tell you, um, I was um, – I actually got to, I got to interview Ernie Hudson once uh, over the phone, and um, 
Uh, it's one of those satellite phone interviews where he, the guy's in a studio and they're recording and you're feeding the questions over the phone and whatever. And uh, we were talking about one of his movies that he was doing around, you know, I guess it would have been around the 2000, 2001 era. And uh, something where he was playing a cop. I can't remember what it was. You know, he's played a lot of, he's played a lot of cops. He's, let's face it. And we're getting to this point and I'm getting to the end of the interview. I says, well, I got to tell you. And I, while I had the time, I says, I know we're running on time, but I couldn't, wouldn't be able to forgive myself if I didn't tell you that you are, were one of my favorite characters in one of my favorite movies of all time. And he says, oh yeah, I, I know Ghostbusters. And I'm like, no, Space Hunter. <laughs> and I just hear this, really? <laughs> I said, oh yeah. I went, what, when you played Washington there, you were toe to toe with Wolf. I thought it was, you were, you were just totally tough, great lines, great dialogue. You, you played that part to the max. I'm just a huge fan of that movie. And I just hear him kind of muttering to some people in there in the background, like, he's just, thank you. I've never heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, my, so my, it's I'm on record for how much I love Rios in this movie. <laughs> well, he's, I, I've always liked him in general as a character, but uh, you oh, know, he's as a, an actor, he, he's a really underrated actor. Uh, he's because he's a character actor, so mm-hmm. he gets put in. As I mentioned, he's played a lot of police officers and stuff, so he's been put in kind of um, official roles and whatnot. And, over the years, but he's also, if you look really closely, he has played a pretty wide array, and he's mm-hmm. he's a very underrated actor, I think. Yeah, well, I, and I also liked how uh, uh, I like how he his character was written in here as well. You know, for the screenplay is actually pretty deep. Is is a solid screenplay. I know the dialogue's cheesy in that, but with the characters that they wrote, I liked his character because even though Wolf is the hero, Washington also felt did not quite feel like the sidekick either. He felt also as an equal. That's why I like Washington quite a bit because he, he's an equal to Wolf, you know? Uh, he wasn't he wasn't written down, and, and he, he's more than just to get them from point A to point B, too, uh, which sometimes happens with characters uh, like Washington. So, yeah, overall, solid cast, great characters, uh, fun script, I think. Michael Ironside, we got to touch on Michael oh. Ironside's overdog. This guy, you know, I love Michael Ironside, especially when he plays villains. And this villain, Don, what do you think of Overdog? <laughs> <laughs> pretty, pretty skeezy villain yeah. for a PG film, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> that I mean. Super creepy makeup, and as a kid, I remember he really creeped me out because um, big robotic arms, a chair, pasty white, stretched out face, all that, uh, all, all the, all hitting on all the right creepy vibes with his dialogue, and. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, the sexual innuendos. Um. What? There were innuendos in here? Oh, <laughs> no, you're right. There were no innuendos. It was pretty blatant. It was pretty um, not my favorite Ironside villain, mm-hmm. um, but definitely, you know, definitely Michael Ironside. Um, watching it earlier, thinking to myself, how how this is one of those villains that is 
why do people follow him? He's so easy to defeat. It takes nothing to sabotage any part of his... He relies on other people. There's nothing to him. Freaking unplug him and he's dead. <laughs> Which I was going to mention about Overdog is that as far as uh, villains go, he is dispatched fairly quickly in this uh -huh. film. <laughs> Which I didn't mind. I was kind of glad you don't have that epic battle because you look at him going, yeah, our hero could just come up and uh, pull the two AA batteries out of his you know, <laughs> Some of his claws don't work anymore. Uh, but Ironside sells Overdog very well. But it, again, here we have an early 80s sci-fi film that's PG, much kind of like we were talking about in Flash Garden. And we've got these uh, sexual overtones in here on some parts, Glenn. Uh, what is this trend? What do you think this trend is about with with these PG sci-fi films that having these uh, these sexual uh, uh, references and overtones? Dudes make sci-fi films and they like sex. <laughs> Pretty much. I, I mean, that's what I think a lot of it is. Uh -huh. It's just simply it's it's the, their core audience was was male, mm -hmm. young male, and this was. I mean, sex was in everything. You know, you're also marketing to you know quote-unquote, a group that, you know, buys into it because the only way they're getting sex is through fantasy. So, <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, in real, because, I mean, fuck, I know more married nerds than anyone else, so. <laughs> but, you know, it was that, that, that thing. is This, this mm -hmm. was their, their quote-unquote core audience. That's what all it was. I don't think there was any, any deep thought put behind it. Right. It just they knew what was going to sell, especially to their demographic that they were going yeah. for. <laughs> But this film, as as Don has used the term before, I'm sure you probably agree. This is still a, a male fantasy film, correct, Don? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. Actually, you know, I I would absolutely also say that it is a teenage girl fantasy film. Really? How? Yeah, absolutely. Oh well, because of the Nikki character, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I could see that because her character does uh, stay pretty much in the forefront for most of this film. Uh, once yeah. we meet her, that is true. I mean, she she runs the maze, which is pretty, you know, pretty. None of the none of the adult males that they were shown in there could could finish it. Yeah, and, and she really had they not cheated, <gasps> they cheated. Oh my God, uh, she would have she would have survived the maze, um, and, and she did with the help of of Wolf a little bit. But yeah, you're you're right. I guess I can kind of see that that it is a uh, it is a uh, bit of a the female teenage fantasy as well because uh, of the Nikki character. Uh, mm -hmm. Wow! Now you just put this film in a whole other angle for me. It's a great, and I'm I, glad I she, typically I'm, I'm, do. And I'm glad she brought that up <laughs> because I always have liked that character quite a bit, and it's great to and it's great to hear it put in that perspective. Yeah, and we do have the aquatic Amazon girls as well, who seem mer women. To be, yeah, mer women who seem to be pretty strong, except for when the the dragon. Roger Corman tentacle shows up. I mean, look at that. We got we got Amazon merwomen. We've got drag sea monsters. We've got 
Don't uh, forget the mutant, mutant midgets. You mutant, can't forget mutant midgets. <laughs> mutant, mutant mutant children will say. Not okay. I don't want to use the M word. Uh, uh, slime people. Uh, the you know we we've got uh, the the weird the great sail barge sequence. Where if you ask me, I think that that's the moment where we've mentioned Han Solo, which he. Peter Strauss definitely embodies in the character. I would also say he embodies Errol Flynn quite a bit, and mm. it really shows in that sequence. You know, we got all that great stuff. I mean, it, they they throw everything in this movie, and and then when you, and when you they don't think you got enough, the villain has robot pincers and stuff like that. I remember when that there's a scene shot where the robot claw comes right out at the screen. Everybody screamed and came, and like rolled back in their seats. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, this is a very interesting sci-fi film, and watching it again, all the practical effects in here, uh, most of them I think hold up really well. Even uh, you know the model effects, especially, you can tell there was effort put into it, considering a film like this. Uh, so I really love the practical effects, but uh, we're going to go down here and see if uh, we haven't touched on the subject yet, we'll, as we always do with these, and see uh, what our crew might have to ask the rest of us. So, Glenn, do, do you have a, a topic or a question that we haven't touched on that you'd like to talk about about this film? Not really with this one, no. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I mean... That's a great response. <laughs> what, I mean, for, for, I mean, aside from what we've already covered, what else is there? Yeah, there, there. We we have covered quite a bit for this film. It, not exactly uh, a deep lake of a film uh, <laughs> here. Uh, but Don, how about you? Did you have a subject or something we may not have touched on that uh, you might want to bring to the group? The only other thing really that uh, stood out for me about the film was the um, was the sets. Mm, yes. uh, I thought the sets were. I I thought the sets were wonderful. I liked, but then again, that goes with the practical effects and, mm-hmm. and the costuming as well. I thought they were very gritty and dark and really uh, created a, a a unique world. Um, <laughs> They did do an excellent job, again, just like when we were talking about Logan's run and even with Flash Gordon. One thing, and yes, here comes the get-off-my-lawn moment brought to you by Mark, the movie man. These early sci-fi films seem to do put effort into their world-building a lot more than many of the sci-fi films of today, I think. Uh, would you say, Scott, that... A lot of these sci-fi, they actually build this world. I mean, I agree with Don completely. The Space Hunter Adventures of the Forbidden Zone, the sets in that, it felt like an alien world. It didn't feel like just, you know, the back lot of Universal. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they could have thrown them right in the desert as, you know, basically every other science fiction film from that era did. You know, they're just like, they throw, throw them out in Death Valley or something in Spain, and, yeah, it's a, it's an alien planet. But not only is it a desert, like, there's the the lighting, the way the sky is photographed. Like, for instance, if you look uh, at the sequence after they get out of the uh, – uh, away from the Amazon women, there's, like, this shot of them going along the water and everything like that, and – you just see the weird cloud coverage in a way, beautiful sky, and they have these sets and everything that are beautiful. This is actually was going to be like one of my questions here. So, oh. <laughs> uh, was was this idea that um, I don't know? I mean, as I touched on this on my movie in my moviocrity episode that I did on this too, uh, and 
there's, there's something about the practical effects in a movie like this. Now, I'm not again, I'm not anti CG at all, but there's something a little more, and I'm, it might just be like old guy nostalgia talking, but there's something kind of, you know, that they could have made. 800-foot-tall ceilings and everything if they did this today and shot it in front of a green screen. And I still wouldn't have found it as impressive because there's something a lot more impressive than somebody who had said, okay, we don't have a huge budget, but we have a little bit of a budget. It's not low budget, and we're going to throw milk cartons, and uh, we're going to get some of the tape machines from Brainstorm, and we're going to put this together, and we're going to piece this together, and we're going to make these models and these sets. There's something more magical about working with that and creating something unique than there is with something where you can say, yeah, I can do anything I want, and as long as I have a, a few extra dollars and you give me the time to make a few extra keystrokes, mm-hmm. you know, there's just something a little more uh, magical about like a movie like this to me because it all feels really organic. It does feel organic. Glenn, would you say most of the effects in here, the practical effects, they actually hold up fairly well, some of the miniatures and that? I mean, I thought that they were actually handled well in here, especially for a film with this budget, you know, yeah, and I mean, not being a Lucas film. <laughs> <laughs> well, you back back then, especially you really you couldn't compare anything to a Lucasfilm. Yeah, I mean, I mean now nowadays you have so many companies that do special effects and do it really well. But back then you still, I mean, Lucas was Lucasfilm was still so far ahead of everyone else. I mean, just with the model building and everything. But I mean, this one, I mean, for for what it was, I mean, the effects are fine. Mm-hmm. Um, it it does at times remind me. I, mean, I, I loved uh, the old Godzilla movies with, with oh, yeah. the model effects of you know the buildings blowing up and stuff like that. And there's definitely some scenes where it very much looks like that, where you know especially the the whole destruction scene at the end and and yeah it's I, I, the, the effects are fine. I mean mm-hmm. I think they hold up well enough. I mean the vehicles, those themselves, I'm like I don't quite understand who designed those. those. Yeah, this looks. Awesome. Now, the, the scrambler I can give a little bit because he, he mentions how he made it himself. Mm-hmm. So that one, I can, but, the, you know, the freaking, I mean, locomotion uh, snowplow that Bernie Hudson drives. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the train with the sails on it for no apparent reason. I love that. Cool. It, was, it, was a win- it, it went by partially by wind power. Ah, okay. So we'll we'll give it that. There's a uh, lot of little. There's a you know what they did put a lot of little tiny backstory yeah. things in this movie. Mm-hmm. If you notice, not, not just with the models, but I mean, if you notice, like the first time he goes, he finds that like shelter, which he finds the skeleton in, and like Nikki has been holed up there. Well, that was the site of the original medical expedition that was. Uh, founded by Overdog McNabb and yeah. Patterson, and Patterson mm-hmm. was the guy that was piloting the sail barge. And, and that, you know, that whole scene, though, yeah. with the sail barge, the whole battle scene there, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm watching, I'm going, so, this is what the road warrior would look like at one-tenth normal speed. <laughs> <laughs> it's Mad Max Cruise Control. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's just... <laughs> They come up in those, those little, like, motorcycle things, and they're driving so slowly. <laughs> <laughs> and the, and the, the fact that, you know, I mean, 
the thing's moving like half a mile an hour, and it still takes, you know, forever for them to gotta hold, pull on those brakes. Oh my gosh, <laughs> we're gonna hit this pile of dirt and and stop anyways. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it does have uh, that. It, it did borrow from Mad Max, very, very upfront about that. Uh, Don, you did mention about how you liked uh, the sets, the way they were decorated and everything. The person who did this uh, also did the set decoration for Blade Runner, uh, Brainstorm, Goonies, Color Purple. Holy shit! She did uh, toys. She did the Rocketeer. Uh, Star Trek the Motion Picture, and as a, just a little aside to connect to another episode earlier we did, she actually did the set decoration for ten episodes of Logan's Run, the TV show. Hey. Wow. <laughs> so the set decoration, there's a reason why it looked good, is because it, it was done by her, who if you've seen the set decoration of those other films, you can understand why. And what was funny is as... What, what's, her, what's, her na- what's her name? Lin- oh, sorry, uh, Linda... De Sena, D E S C E N N A. Nice. Uh, okay. Uh, so she was a set director, a decorator for it, and and yeah, that style you can see that. Yeah, I mean, she was very talented. All those films had oh, some yeah. great set decoration in them, and so yeah, you can see why. And then you got that great score by Elmer. Bernstein. Oh, God. <laughs> the great cheesy canon action film type. Oh, I'd say it's no, I'd say it's better than a canon king because those canon things are usually like these little synthesized things. This is full orchestration. Dum, dum, da, 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 dum, bum, 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 bum. I mean, it's like, it's so rousing. It's like a combination of John Williams and well, like Jerry Goldsmith, say, and, or and Jerry Goldsmith, and to say something I said earlier, like something from like an old uh, Errol Flynn film, like Captain Blood or Robin Hood, you know, yeah. uh, it, it 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 piles all that in there. I mean, it's a re- you got to say something. The film, everything about this says that this would be just like another like shot in the dark, low budget film. There were so many that were mm-hmm. released just that summer, you know, and but. They, with what they had, which was like a mid-budget movie, they really just threw all their shit into it. Uh, I think that the Can- it was the Canadian production team, you know, Ivan Reitman and his partners and stuff, who had done heavy metal recently. I think yep. this is like the closest thing that you'd get to, like, to like say, like, well, what if heavy, heavy metal was live action and PG? <laughs> you know, and there it is, you know. That's, that's actually a good summary for it. And uh, Elmer Bernstein, who did do the soundtrack to this, probably traveled with Mr. Ivan Reitman because he would go on to do Ghostbusters soundtrack. Uh, he also did the soundtrack to Trading Places. Many great soundtracks. Elmer Bernstein's a great composer. Uh, you know, he was the best part of Leonard Part Six. Uh, so, oh. <laughs> but, uh, I, I I like his you know his style and his composing, and it was great hearing. Yeah, the soundtrack helped quite a bit give that adventure feel to this uh, film, which is uh, you know kind of that sort of that road. What I what I kind of started thinking of as kind of a roadshow type of adventure in which you have your hero or your group of characters kind of like in Damnation Alley where you're going from basically one set piece to another as you're trying to get to your your goal, you know, and you're on the road and you run across cannibals or you come across, you know, 
uh, merwomen. <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> the first screenplay I ever wrote, uh, I was gonna, almost went into filmmaking, and I, you know, to make sure I knew how what I was knew what I was going to be doing, I was um, type, trying to type up screenplays and stuff like that, and some of them were good and some of them were bad. And I remember the first one I was going to do, like, a big sci-fi adventure. And I think everybody wants to say, like, well, if only I could write something as good as the next Star Wars. I wanted to write the, something as good as Space Hunter. <laughs> and um, I, I think I followed that thing. I, so they just went from one place to the next <laughs> in the thing. Mm-hmm. And you know what? It wasn't bad. It's not no space hunter but it's not as bad well, no, but not... i think that that was the model that i went to as well like just one thing to the next cuz i think i and i still to this day love movies that throw everything with the kitchen sink in and mm. you know you don't stay in one spot for very long <laughs> and that's what this movie's like yeah i mean i, I guess that's what i just call it the road road show you know adventure kind of thing uh because it, I mean, we had that even in you know Mad Max. You had that you know where you're kind of traveling cross not country but whatever, and you just run into these different individuals rather than you know being stuck on the same ship forever. So I, I kind of liked it because they ran into so many things, including the Blob people. Which John, the Blob people, <laughs> the, the the Blob people that were coming out of those cocoon things. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I'm looking at those today going, huh, I wonder if Sam Raimi saw this because the blob creatures were very reminiscent uh, to me of uh, 1987's Evil Dead 2. Mm-hmm. I can yeah. see that. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah. I can see that they're almost kind of like those, I mean, this is bringing up a movie that I personally think is a bad movie. People disagree, but they also kind of look like those uh, weird blob creatures in Nothing But Trouble. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah thanks did. for bringing that one up. Thank, yeah, thanks. I know it's a shitty I know it's it, bad, bad. Boy, you know, well. That one or, I saw in the theater. Oh, boy. <laughs> Taste gone. <laughs> boy, you know, Mark brings up Leonard Part 6. I bring up Nothing But Trouble. Oh, yeah, my we're, just, we're just on a roll here. Quick, somebody bring up Dana Carvey in Master of Disguise. No. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. You just ruined two years of therapy. Thank you. <laughs> my wife and I had just cleared Master of Disguise from our brain. You had to bring it up. It's all coming back to me now. <laughs> Back to Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. Yes, the che- dialogue's a bit cheesy, but I think this is overall a fun sci-fi adventure. One of the better ones of the early 80s where you could see people were trying to cash in. And so they were trying to get into that period between Empire and Jedi is when we started to see a lot of these sci-fi films especially. And this one I think is one of the better ones. So uh, we'll get our final thoughts with a Space Hunter from our crew here. And uh, we'll wrap it up for the evening here because, again, it's not a deep film and, I, and we've covered it pretty good and, and I hope we've whet your appetite a bit. So, Don, uh, your final thought with Space Hunter, uh, would you recommend it at all out of the 80s sci-fi films out there? Oh, sure. I think it's it's a lot of fun. Definitely not something deep. Uh, the kind of film you sit down with with a cocktail in hand and disengage your brain and, and just have a good time. 
if you're looking for something with a high budget, go find something with a high budget. <laughs> yeah, it, it looked like they were having fun with this film. Uh, uh-huh. it, it definitely looked like they were enjoying themselves making this film. How about you, Glenn? Would you recommend this film? Uh, would you, a particular group of people you might recommend it to? I mean, anyone who just likes uh, a fun sci-fi story um, with some, you know, some interesting. There's a little interesting world building going on. But yeah, probably no one under the age of 35. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Because they'll just look at this and go, oh, what are you making me watch this for? What did I do to you? I was good. I took the garbage out. Why are you making me watch this? Anyway, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this is a conversation that happens at Mark's house a lot. <laughs> We won't. We won't go there, Scott. Uh, you, I know. I know your recommendation. Uh, I will. I would recommend. See, I just love this movie. I think it's swashbuckling, serial time, sci-fi, pulp adventure. I would recommend it to just about everyone, with the knowledge that conservatively, at least half the person I rec- recommend this movie to would probably never want to speak to me again. But still, I love this movie so much. Uh, I'm going to get weird for a second just because I haven't had an opening to say my favorite line from the movie. Okay, <laughs> but I did, But I've always loved it ever since a kid. Since I was a kid, that once Nikki makes it through the maze, she get runs up and Overdog t- tells her she has a very enviable life force, a life force he's going to share with her. And Nikki says, "But you said if I made it through the maze, I'd go free." I lied. Nobody <laughs> goes free. I fucking love this movie. Okay, this movie, the cast is tops. The effects, the story, I love everything about this. I've seen it over 100 times. I'll, I'll tell you this right now. Yesterday, I was physically ill. I had no energy at all. And uh, I had almost forgotten that I was, oh, shoot, we're doing this show. I need to watch Space Hunter again, even though I knew the movie by heart. I was going to watch it again. I'm like, oh, shoot. And I'm like, ah, I'm not in the mood for it or anything. You know, I had a headache earlier. I'm not feeling well. This, the credits pop up, like, just in, like, with the first ten seconds, and that title comes out of the screen, and then Elmer Bernstein's music comes up. Boom. I'm in the zone. All my problems forgotten. It's fantastic. And I can't think of a better recommendation than that. Nice, and I, I will say as well, it, this is this is a fun film. It's a it's a popcorn film. It's an early '80s popcorn film, uh, where you just sit back, you relax, and you, you have fun with it because people on screen are having fun with it. Uh, you know, uh, Michael Ironside, he doesn't get a whole lot of screen time, but when he does, he makes the most of it. As uh, Scott uh, very adequately quoted there. Uh, he makes the most <laughs> of that scene because that's about one of the only scenes he really gets where he's not being shot at or uh, driven around on a crane. So, <laughs> he's a mobile iron side. He, he is. He's a mobile <laughs> iron side. Yeah. So we're going to wrap it up. I hope we wet your whistle. Hope you're enjoying these sci-fi uh, uh, episodes. I'm, I'm digging going back and revisiting these. And so we're going to go down the line really quick. This is where people can pimp uh, their stuff. So, Don, go ahead. Where can they find you? You can find me at intheaudience.net. And Mr. BFD? You can find me on Facebook with the BMW Bunker. Find me on YouTube, BMW Bunker and uh, Guy in the Bunker Productions. Find me on Twitter at Guy in the Bunker or go to my new website, GuyInTheBunker.com. Nice. And Scotty D. 
And you can catch me at Movieocrity.com, and you can also see my web series, Movieocrity, where I talk about all sorts of great exploitation films, including Space Hunter. And you can catch uh, most of those episodes on YouTube and all those episodes on Vimeo. Fantastic. And yes, you can catch links to all these fine folks as well as all our old episodes on specialmarkproductions.com as well as uh, my most recent episodes where I did some co-reviews. We did uh, celebrate, and that's why this is Milestone Month, our actual 10th birthday for our YouTube channel was uh, this past weekend. So been the old man of the YouTubes. Uh, it was uh, 10 years ago Sunday when I posted my very first YouTube video, and we are coming up on our thousandth video uh, to be posted here on the channel. So lots of interesting milestones. We're just hoping to hit that uh, a thousand subscriber milestones. So if you like our YouTube channel, like the videos here, as well as any reviews, go to uh, the YouTube channel and subscribe. We are that close to 1K. And catch us on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. You can also reach us on the Twitters at MovieManiac3D and at SpoilerRoomPDCS. And finally, email us. Please let us know if there's a movie you'd like to hear the crew discuss at uh, SpoilerRoom.SMP at gmail.com. It's in the description notes. Thank you so much for listening, and good night, Earthers. 